five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hey, fellow space enthusiasts. My guest this time is Dr. Pete Worden whose many roles in the space sector over the last decades include having been the director of the NASA Ames Research Center. Among the things he's currently working on is a mission to send tiny spacecraft to the Alpha Centauri system. And there's so much more. Please enjoy my conversation with Pete. My name is Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out, and also check out my episode with their CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. Everybody, I'm very thrilled to be joined here today by Dr. Pete Worden, who's had a very illustrious career in the space sector in a variety of worlds, um, starting as a research astronomer. He was a, a U.S. Air Force general. He was the head of the NASA Ames Center. He is now the chairman of the Breakthrough Prize Foundation. He's also a lecturer at and trustee of the International Space University and a senior advisor to the Luxembourg government on space. Pete, did I forget anything? No, that's that's perfect. Uh, you know, I just I keep. Did I do all that? I guess I did. <laughs> Excellent. So that's lots of things to talk about and to unpack. So why don't we start with um, with one of your uh, main current roles, which is chairman of the Breakthrough Prize Foundation. Do you want to quickly give us the summary of sort of like, you know, what Breakthrough is and how it relates to, to space and space research? Uh, sure. The, the Breakthrough Prize Foundation was, was founded about 12 years ago. And its original purpose was uh, to encourage young people to go into science. And our founders, uh, I mean, the initial founder was uh, Yuri Milner, uh, Israeli uh, and Russian physicist and investor, uh, that he was concerned when he looked at a uh, list of the most admired people on the planet, there were very few scientists. And, uh, you know, you might have Einstein and, 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 and maybe Stephen Hawking. Uh, so he and some other high net worth people that uh, included uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Sergey Brin and Andrew Swiskey and for a while Jack Ma and Al Ponyma in uh, in China founded the Breakthrough Prize, which is the largest prize in science. That's uh, it. Uh, the the awards are uh, almost three times the size of the of a Swedish prize. I won't mention. But what we try to do is, in addition to just giving these prizes, we have a major uh, event now. For the last two years, it's been postponed because of COVID, but we hope to have it uh, a year from now. And uh, it, it's going to be called the Oscars of Science. Uh, and it, it was uh, uh, it was decided to hold that at uh, the campus at NASA Ames Research Center in Silicon Valley. Uh, and I was uh, I was involved in, in allowing them to use the center. Uh, of course, they invited me to the to the ceremony because you always invite the landlord to a big party, uh, especially if you're having it in their on their on their property. Uh, but uh, uh, during that period, I got to know Mr. Milner and some of the other sponsors pretty well. 
about uh, 2014, uh, uh, Mr. Milner asked me if uh, if I was interested potentially in a, that not just uh, awarding science, uh, but also uh, sponsoring science, particularly related to the question of life in the universe. Uh, and I, I, I jumped at the chance and in early 2015, uh, I left NASA and uh, uh, we started uh, as part of the Breakthrough Prize Foundation, the Breakthrough Initiatives. And uh, the initiatives uh, were designed to, to really uh, sponsor significant research uh, uh, into the, uh, the questions of life in the universe and, and three in particular. Uh, the first one is, uh, in no particular order, was, uh, is there life anywhere in the universe? You know, as I think probably most of your listeners know, that that, that we don't know of life anyplace else. Uh, we, we have some hints that there may be life on Mars and elsewhere in the solar system. So we have a number of programs designed to both see if we can find life in our solar system uh, or potentially and in, 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 in maybe more significantly uh, nearby solar systems. Uh, and that's called Breakthrough Watch. Uh, the, the second major project actually started earlier, which was, can we find intelligent life elsewhere? Uh, of course, that always begs the issue, is there intelligent life here? But we'll assume since we're talking, there is. That was called Breakthrough Listen. Uh, and for that project, Mr. Milner committed $100 million for a 10-year program that's uh, often called the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, SETI, uh, or now sometimes more accurately called Technosignatures Research. Uh, and that's been going on for uh, for about seven years. And the first two projects, we've had some significant advantages that the, the in the in the breakthrough watch, uh, we've succeeded in in getting tentative indications that there's a giant planet orbiting uh, Alpha Centauri A, the the nearest uh, mm-hmm. star system. It has two solar type stars. Uh, what's interesting about that is that's uh, that the scenario of a giant planet orbiting Alpha Centauri A, sort of a Neptune, uh, Saturn-sized planet, is actually the exact scenario in Avatar and uh, the science fiction movie from over a decade ago. And uh, uh, if you people recall the movie, it, it had a giant planet orbiting Alpha Centauri A called Polyphemus uh, that had a moon that, that was not only inhabitable, but inhabited by, uh, by intelligent aliens. I will say there's enough interest in that that, uh, that uh, James Cameron, who was uh, you know, the creator of that, actually appeared at our annual conference to, to discuss that. Uh, so perhaps science fiction ex- <laughs> preceded fact. The second yeah. your kind of discovery uh, or interesting uh, discovery was uh, last fall, Breakthrough Listen, we got our first signal that we initially thought was it, it passed all the tests, was an intelligent signal. Uh, interesting enough, it came from the third star in the Alpha Centauri system, Proxima Centauri. We know there's an Earth-sized planet uh, orbiting in the habitable zone of that red dwarf star. Now, we're virtually certain now that that's... Uh, was terrestrial interference, but it was quite exciting for a while. And our third project is probably my favorite, is that uh, is that we're, uh, uh, it's called Breakthrough Starshot, and we started this in 2016. And uh, both the Breakthrough Listen and Breakthrough Starshot were announced by Yuri Milner in concert with uh, Stephen Hawking, who was our science advisor. And that's designed to, to figure out, can we send a, a small probe sometime later this century, 20% the speed of light, and actually go and, and investigate in person or in at least by uh, robots, uh, the nearest star system, and uh, uh, that's going along quite well. We're in the midst of our first phase of research. Uh, we're anticipating sending that probe by a, a laser-driven light sail, so it's, it's it's actually quite exciting. So, but those are the current programs. Uh, 
Uh, we're certainly uh, looking at other things. We're looking at potential probes to go to planets in our own solar system, look for life, uh, and also advanced uh, technology uh, efforts to, uh, to, to look for life elsewhere. This, this is all very interesting. So let's talk about uh, a little bit about each of them. And I must say, you mentioned um, Avatar and science fiction um, in the context of Breakthrough Listen, Alpha Centauri. And when you were talking about the audio signal, I immediately thought about uh, the three-body problem. The Chinese, the Chinese novel where we're receiving a uh, like a message from from a planet in the Alpha Centauri system, and of course the novel tells us we should probably should not answer it. <laughs> but in any, <laughs> but in but in any event, so uh, maybe picking up on that. So when you, when this breakthrough watch or breakthrough listen, what kind of signals are we actually? watching out for and are we taking into account sort of like even us humans i guess you know we are developing our own technology so like right now you know we're moving away from a lot of communications from radio frequency and it seems to be like moving towards more and more optical like laser communications is that kind of stuff reflected in in what we're you know looking out for in, in breakthrough listen breakthrough uh, watch as well well it's a very interesting question of, of where to look for alien technology again uh, we don't know what aliens might use. Hmm. Uh, and as, as you noted, that uh, we're moving from more radio signals to more optical signals. You know, we're looking for a couple things. And in, in one case, we're looking for a, a signal which might accidentally be, you know, it wasn't intended for us, but we, we, we just intercepted those called leakage. Mm -hmm. And uh, that could be anything. It could, uh, you know, and uh, if you looked at the Earth from the Alpha Centauri system, for example, one of the signals you might detect is a high-energy radars, radars that are used for air traffic control and so forth. And now it's, it's always been said that, uh, you know, maybe the aliens are listening to I Love Lucy from the 1950s and 60s. Uh, the, the problem with that, of course, is that if the, the signal from a broadcast television is so weak that yeah. it, if, if we were to have I Love Gork from, from Proxima Centauri, we're just now getting big enough radio telescopes to detect that signal. Uh, but uh, we're also looking for laser signals. And uh, we have a program uh, that's with a, a, a all-sky sort of looking for optical flashes for, for, for cosmic ray bursts uh, called Veritas. It's a telescope that Harvard University runs in Arizona. And uh, we're looking to see if we see any laser flashes. And we also have another program looking for optical lasers from the nearest stars. Uh, it's the Automated Planet Finder at Lick Observatory. An accidental signal could be very, very powerful. Uh, our breakthrough Starshot laser uh, if we build it, which will have over 100 gigawatts of power, very finely directed, if it was, uh, if you were accidentally in the beam, uh, you could detect it with systems like we have uh, out to billions of light years. So, you know, halfway across the universe. And, uh, you know, we are starting to look at all sky systems. There are also uh, other programs that uh, uh, are beginning to look at that, also privately funded uh, uh, there's one at uh, University of California, San Diego, that's privately funded, uh, that's, uh, that, that's uh, looking for these. There are others that people are looking for. So uh, we really don't know. Uh, it's interestingly enough, the, the, the signal we did get from Proxima Centauri, or what appeared to be from the direction of Proxima Centauri, was at a frequency not usually used for communication. I think it was like 980 megahertz. Mm. Uh, so we're trying to look as broad as we can. We're looking at low frequencies and high frequencies and, and uh, just trying to do as much as we can. And, and uh, our, our intent is over the next few years to actually at least look at broadband radio of the, uh, uh, the million nearest stars. That's out to a complete survey if we can do it out to about a thousand light years. Now, that's more looking for a directed signal that, that somebody's trying to signal us. 
Now, uh, as, as you noted, uh, there's quite a discussion about whether we should signal anybody else. And uh, mm. uh, we, we've chosen to stay away from that, uh, although we initially had a, a program called Breakthrough Message that we were thinking about to not send something, but to think about what you would send. Uh, and that's probably still an important thing to do. But, uh, you know, the question there is that, you know, a lot of experts say, well, one reason you're not hearing anything is you're not speaking. <laughs> and of course, there are many others that say, well, sometimes speaking is, is a bad idea. And uh, so, we, and that's quite an interesting argument now. And, uh, you know, I don't know what my position is. It kind of goes back and forth. Uh, you know, I, 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 I do think that, uh, that, you know, I have a little problem with the three-body problem because it's based on improbable orbital mechanics. You know, the, the real Alpha Centauri system is not a chaotic set of orbits. I mean, it's, they're quite stable and been stable for billions of years. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, but nonetheless, it it raises an issue that uh, uh, if we really did get a signal from Proxima Centauri, the nearest star, now that the, the signal that we did get was clearly not it didn't contain any content. It was it, it uh, uh, the way we identify a, a potential techno signature is we look for a very narrow band radio signal or optical for that matter because narrow band signals. Uh, you know, natural physics, astrophysics processes don't produce very narrow band, uh, okay. either radio or optical signature. So we look for a narrow band, and then we look for something that drifts with time, because the, the drifting shows that, I mean, this is a, a something off the Earth that's, you know, it could be an orbit around the Earth, it could be a nearby star system, or it could be someplace else in our solar system, or orbiting, you know, even a planet uh, such as Proxima B, the 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 probable Earth-sized planet and the habitable zone of Proxima Centauri. But uh, then we also look, we take the telescope and we move it on and off the, the object. So you look, you move it off and you don't see the mm -hmm. target you put on. Now, one of the problems with this set of observations, they were taken several years ago and we were just getting around looking at them. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were taken for a slightly different purpose. They were in concert with the space observatory tests, the transiting uh, uh, exoplanet survey uh, a satellite, and uh, uh, we we're really trying to study the, the flares on Proxima Centauri, and so we had a different mode. Uh, the reason we're pretty sure now it's it's not a real signal is that we found during that period of time some other signals from other places in the sky that that in that general part of the sky that seem to be somewhat similar, although not identical. So mm -hmm. there's still a small possibility there's a real signal there. So we are mounting additional programs. Uh, uh, one of the problems with the Southern Hemisphere is that there's, right now there's only one suitable radio telescope, which is the Parkes Radio Telescope in Australia, mm -hmm. just bringing online the Meerkat radio array in South Africa. So we do plan in the next few months a, a, a joint program to really intensively study Proxima Centauri. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You you mentioned that in the end uh, you, you thought the signal was probably terrestrial interference. How much of a problem is that these days? And does does that mean we should just kind of uh, spend the money at some point and go on the far side of the moon where we have less less interference? Well, it's a very serious problem. I mean, we're literally in a sea of radio noise on the Earth. Mm. Uh, I mean, the, the 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 there are places in Australia, for example, that are considered the quietest in the planet. But even those are mm. very noisy. There's you know whether it's a cell phone or uh, you know, a radio broadcast or satellites or whatever, there's there's interference everywhere. Uh, I'm a strong believer that if we really want to go to a quiet place, we want to go to the far side of the moon. And uh, and because uh, the moon blocks the Earth's interference. Mm. The, 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 the worrisome thing is we're already seeing radio 
you know, transmitters, uh, you know, in the in orbit around the moon. I mean, the Chinese placed a communications yep. satellite. And, uh, you know, I'm, we're kind of hoping that there'll be some uh, here. And we've, we've begun to have discussions with the, or I should say the community has, uh, not just us, with the, the uh, UN Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space and others. You know, is it possible to establish a, a radio quiet uh, region on the far side of the moon and then uh, have some sort of uh, protocols that say that, that communication satellites, uh, you know, need to avoid that area and need to avoid frequencies, you know, that sort of be deconflicted. Uh, and it, and we're maybe running out of time for that. So, uh, yep. uh, you know, that's that's clearly one answer. And it's one I quite favor is to, is to you know, they're, now they're not cheap, but uh, I think that the, the new developments in, and especially lunar activities may make them affordable that, you know, for tens of millions or most hundreds of millions, a, a, a rather capable radio observatory could be placed in the far side of the moon. Yeah, yeah. And then moving to, to Breakthrough Starshot, which is an absolutely fascinating project. So what what is the current status sort of like, what are any, say, remaining technological obstacles and what is, you think, a, a feasible timeline for for actually making that happen? Well, there's there's probably about 30 major challenges. Uh, we've picked the three or four that, that we consider the, the, the what we call deal breakers. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, there's, uh, we've, we've, we're, we're in the midst of, of rather intensive research and analysis projects on, on uh, uh, I'll say now there's a fourth one. And uh, uh, the, uh, the first one was, uh, is, can we build a laser array on the Earth that's powerful enough uh, and, and affordable uh, that we can get the beam through the atmosphere with, with enough uh, coherence, uh, meaning it's a high-quality beam that you could push a light sail? And uh, the answer to being able to build it and that the technology of, of being able to control the beam quality is, uh, is based on the research we did, particularly a significant result from the Australian National University uh, was that, uh, that we funded, by the way, it was that, uh, yes, we can do that. And that's, that's a major breakthrough. Uh, the second one, which is still a very much an open issue, is can you build this laser array affordably, meaning sort of, you know, what are 10 billion euros or so? And uh, uh, the jury is still out on that. We've got some research analysis, but there are some promising developments in both automating laser manufacture and uh, and also a, a different approach, which is it's called Vexels, which is a which is a sort of a laser phased array module, and uh, those look promising. But we won't know for another six months or so. The second major uh, challenge was: can you build a, a light sail that's uh, that's five or ten meters in diameter that can hold together and, and reflect the power and not absorb enough of it, you know, for half hour to an hour enough to accelerate this, uh, the, 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 the payload uh, to 20% the speed of light. Uh, we've had a major set of research on that. And, and fortunately, the answer is yes. Uh, and that's been managed for us by uh, Professor Harry Atwater at Caltech. Uh, as part of that, we've also considered, you know, the challenge of how do you attach a, a, a nanosatellite, you know, the, the sort of gram class spacecraft that, that is able to do all these things and has a camera and so on. And uh, we've had some major breakthroughs in, in understanding how that could be done. And basically the answer is we're, we're probably not going to attach what looks like a chip to this sail. We're going to distribute the electronic uh, components throughout the entire sail. So it's an integrated uh, um, kind of spacecraft that's, mm-hmm. that's a, kind of a, you know, a f- thin film. 
And that itself is a major kind of a breakthrough for a lot of different things. I think has a lot of commercial applications. The third one is uh, is the uh, is the uh, uh, the, 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 the communication, uh, we're, we're just, uh, uh, in, in the process of, uh, of, uh, of doing that research. We're about halfway through and, uh, you know, that's probably the biggest challenge. How do you, mm. how do you get a laser beam back from Alpha Centauri and, uh, on this sort of, you know, several gram spacecraft? Uh, we think we have ways to do that. Right now, the biggest challenge in that, and this is what I call the fourth challenge, is how do you power it? Yeah. You know, you like tens of watts, and uh, we know how to get maybe, you know, up to a watt. So we've got, you know, there are, there, there are promising approaches. Uh, one of those, in, interestingly enough, is to basically harvest power from, you know, something uh, going, you know, 20% speed of light. It, it It's going through the interstellar gas medium and actually... You know that will heat one side relative to the other of some sort of a, uh, a electrical converter. So we might be able to do that if we can figure out the geometry. Uh, we also are looking at radioactive power sources as well as actually, if you're in the Alpha Centauri system, you know, directly harvesting power from the mm. from the starlight. So yeah. it's a I want to call it it's it's not a solar panel. It's a it's a Alpha Centauri panel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that, that makes sense. I would have asked you about the communications because, I mean, it seems that uh, if, if you want to close what we call in SATCOM the, the, the link budget, um, then I, I guess you would, I mean, even if you get to the power levels you mentioned, it probably uh, means we would need a very, very big uh, receiver on Earth, right? Well, it's not trivial, but uh, we think that if we started, we would actually use the light sail itself as a focusing element. Okay. And, and so, you know, you'd have a five or 10 meter directed beam uh, of course, we've got to be able to then point it at the Earth accurately enough. Uh, but uh, if you can get a few tens of watts, we could probably get up to a, and we would use a telescope, for example, like the the, the new class of extremely large telescopes being built today, the sort of 30, 40 meter class telescope. Uh, that mm -hmm. would be sufficient to get maybe uh, hundreds of bits to a kilobit per second. So it's it's comparable to the deep space probes that we've already sent. Uh, now that, by the way, if we're able to do that, that sort of revolutionizes, you know, how we do, you know, our own, our, you know, in our own solar system, deep space. And there's a lot of interest in NASA and uh, other space agencies about very efficient laser communications. Okay, so beyond the um, the breakthrough Starshot and the other breakthrough current projects, what are some of the missions that that you think should be done that you would like to do? Well, I'm I'm, I'm very excited about, uh, you know, is it. Is it possible to build uh, cheap, large space optics? And mm -hmm. uh, you know, the uh, uh, particularly if you look at, in fact, I think Elon Musk has talked a little bit about this. Is that the Starship? You know, can launch you know many tens of tons, and that uh, this may make it possible. You know, uh, you know, space telescopes today are billions of dollars, and we can do it for mm -hmm. you know order of magnitude cheaper or more. And so. Uh, uh, I'm very excited about that. Uh, I'm also excited uh, recently about the idea of uh, of using light sail technology to access the entire solar system. Mm. Uh, there's there's a group at Caltech uh, uh, led by Slava Turechev, a professor there, who mm -hmm. is uh, has actually been proposing and it's 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 funded by NASA. Uh, you know, solar light sails, you know, things. And it turns out if you uh, do what's called a sun diver, uh, you can you can drop something into, you know, even two-tenths of an astronomical unit and the, and the sunlight's uh, powerful enough to push it to, 
you know, five or 10 astronomical units a year, which means now we can access the entire solar system in years, not decades. Uh, if you can go closer to the sun, uh, you know, like a, you know, a few hundredths of an astronomical unit. Now there's a lot of thermal issues on that. You might be able to get to, to, to you know, to a hundred astronomical units a year. Now you're, you're still not at relativistic speeds, but that would make it possible for us to get to, you know, the, some very exciting places in the, the outer solar system, like the Oort cloud. Uh, one in particular I'm very excited about is, and, and, and this is the basis of the studies they did for NASA, is uh, it's uh, called a solar gravity lens imager. And it turns out at about 500 astronomical units out, you know, 500 times the distance of the Earth to the sun, uh, there's a point where the sun itself acts as a, as a million kilometer lens. It actually, you know, due to general relativity, it bends starlight. Mm -hmm. So you actually can act, it, so you've got a focus point. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, a million kilometer uh, telescope is, uh, it can give you resolution that we could actually maybe see surface structure on planets orbiting some of the nearby stars. Wow. And, and now it's a hard challenge. There's a lot of technical questions, but well, that's another one that, that I'm very excited about. But even uh, before we can do that, uh, I mean, even going five or 10 astronomical units a year, we and it, 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 I just had a meeting a few weeks ago with the with the the leaders of this team, and they believe that a you know five kilogram spacecraft uh, that could be it could be a you know solar sail that would enable us to get to get very significant missions. This sort of allows us to have cubesat sized payloads that can go all around the solar system. So I, I think it it now makes it possible to do you know solar system wide missions that would be you know, uh, you know, million dollar class or million euro class rather than, you know, billions. So again, I, I'm very excited about these developments that, you know, a combination of, of low cost, very heavy launch, uh, using new technology to, to do, uh, uh, and to do using things like light sails that we might have access to the entire solar system. And finally, of course, is, is that we've discussed in the past, uh, new propulsion. And, uh, you know, I'm very excited about fusion. Uh, of course, anybody that watches The Expanse knows that's how they got around the solar system, <laughs> is efficient. Epstein, uh, Epstein Drive. <laughs> yeah, but I think we may be close to the Epstein Drive. I think there's a, you know, in the next decade, uh, there's some very interesting possibilities, which now makes it possible to build a spaceship that's like a real ship, so that most of it isn't fuel, most of it is payload and and uh, uh, I think that'll open up the, most of the solar system uh, to human activities, which is to me very exciting. I mean, if, if we stay within our solar system, I mean, you mentioned before that one of the main, if not the main objective at Breakthrough is sort of looking out for, you know, answering the question whether there is life, whether, you know, simple or intelligent life in, in other places. I mean, how much are you also looking at places in the solar system? You had Venus was obviously in the news about a year ago with the potential phosphine signature. Then we uh, we always get um, periodical um, you know appearances of places like um, Europa with its ocean, Enceladus with its ocean, uh, Titan with maybe a different uh, uh, you know, uh, form of life. Um, how much are you looking at uh, those places as well? well? Very much so. We had uh, a series of studies the last few years. Uh, the, the first study, we looked at uh, Enceladus, which uh, uh, has plumes of, of water that 
are ejected into space and that in some evidence of simple organic molecules in it. Uh, the, uh, and then we also did a much more in-depth study on Europa where there's, there's evidence or some evidence of similar plumes. Uh, and we're still looking at those. Uh, you know, one of our concerns is making sure that the, you know, the cost is reasonable. And, uh, but we, we had a major set of studies that the, the head the lead for those studies, uh, the, especially the, the Europa one, was uh, John Grunsfeld, the, you know, the, the Hubble repair astronaut and also the former head of science at NASA. And he's still working with us closely. Uh, we've just completed a study uh, that uh, Professor Sarah Seeger at MIT did for us about looking in for life in the upper Venusian atmosphere. And, uh, you know, at the, at the current time, we haven't chosen to do any of those missions yet, uh, but there's growing interest in it, uh, both uh, by the part of our sponsor and other sponsors, uh, including space agencies. So, uh, you know, those studies, I think, have helped move that along. Uh, and uh, we, we may decide, I mean, that's uh, we have a process to go through to decide that we have a advisory panels and all these topics uh, to really vet those and and also to look at the cost and risk. Uh, as a privately funded effort, we're certainly able to take much larger risk than space agencies. Uh, on the other hand, uh, one of our concerns about Europa uh, was that, I mean, even with that, the cost was several hundred million, is that uh, that the, the evidence of the plumes indicate on Europa that unlike Enceladus, they're more intermittent. And uh, it was certainly a concern on our part that uh, if you sp spent hundreds of millions of, of, of dollars to go to Europa and uh, you you're, want to see Old Faithful and Old Faithful wasn't working that week, mm -hmm. uh, it, it, you know, you, 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 so we really need more evidence that there's, there's, uh, there's, you know, extant plumes all the time there. And so, th so those are the things that we're, we're certainly looking at. So we're, uh, I'd say that's very much an open question. And uh, uh, we have been working with NASA and other agencies, space agencies on that. Yeah, and a number of these places we are, I mean, the agencies are going back. I think Venus, we have now two announced missions by NASA recently, and then Europa, we have the Europa Clipper. And, um, but I think all of this comes back to the propulsion question, right? Because I think at current propulsion technologies, all of these places like the Jovian Saturnian moons are basically five to seven years away, right? At the, at, at the minimum. And then, minimum. And, it, uh, and then you need a very large booster. Now I will say Venus is a little more accessible. Mm -hmm. uh, we have been in discussions with the uh, rocket lab, which is planning mm -hmm. a private mission to Venus in 2023. Yeah. Indeed, one of our uh, the the study recommendations is that we put a small instrument on that one, and that's that's under active discussion with our uh, with our uh, our technical advisors, and uh, so uh, that's possible. Uh, you know, the uh, uh, that's clearly one of the recommendations. I mean, the int most interesting recommendation of Professor Seeger's study was that what you eventually might want to do is bring a sample of the Venusian atmosphere back, mm. and. Uh, just to remind folks, there's a level at about 50 kilometers that's very interesting. That's the level that uh, that uh, the paper that she and her colleagues, uh, uh, particularly Professor Graves in the UK, uh, was the primary author, found evidence of phosphine. Now that's been disputed, um, although I tend to be on the side that it's real. And uh, those are at this level about 50 kilometers above the surface of Venus, where the atmospheric pressure and temperature is about the same as on the Earth. So. Uh, eventually, uh, it, it may be easier to, to to pull a sample of the Venusian atmosphere than maybe a sample of the surface of Mars. So, so we've begun to look at that as a serious question. So I haven't caught up with all of the papers. Was it that the evidence of phosphine itself was disputed, or that that it was disputed that the phosphine may be from organic processes? Well, there were both. The uh, the 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 primary criticism initially was that that the uh, uh, that the, the it was a radio line 
that was detected with the ALMA radio array mm -hmm. in, mm -hmm. uh, in Chile was misidentified, that it was actually some other mm. chemical. Okay. Uh, and I think that's still under discussion, but there are now a number of alternative detections that that any one, one of them can be disputed, but it does appear that there is something very interesting, uh, some what's called non-equilibrium gas, probably phosphine, uh, at those levels in the Venusian atmosphere. Uh, but now a lot of the discussion has shifted from uh, not whether there's something there, but is, is it can it be produced by volcanic processes? We know there's volcanic processes that go on and, and Venus or have gone on in the past. Uh, I would say that 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 Professor Seegers made a compelling case to us that, that it's very unlikely that those processes would work. Uh, she's also been able to show with, with lab experiments and research that there are, you know, one of the concerns has been that in that level, the Venusian atmosphere, uh, although the temperature and pressure is sort of Earth-like, the, uh, the the chemical constituents, uh, I mean, you're right in the middle of the clouds, and the clouds are sulfuric acid droplets, mm -hmm. very, very pure sulfuric acid droplets, and uh, that uh, that's a very inhospitable thing to Earth life. But she's been able to show that there are processes that life could use to survive in that, uh, for example, neutralizing the the sulfuric acid with ammonia, which is also present. And uh, there's not a lot of water there, but there's some. And uh, the, the interesting possibility is that, you know, Venus probably had oceans a lot longer than Mars did. You know, Mars under a billion years. Venus, by most of the models, had oceans for two billion years. Uh, life could have arisen there as it did on Earth, or it could, have, mm -hmm. it could have come from Earth or from Mars or even from interstellar space. And that life, assuming that the, the, the heating of Venus happened fairly slowly, which it probably did over hundreds of millions or billions of years, that uh, life could have slowly evolved as it does on Earth in very inhospitable environments. I mean, we know there's life on Earth in some very strange places like, mm. you know, hot springs with very high sulfuric acid content. Uh, although I might add the sulfuric acid on Mars is much purer than it is in a, in a boiling hot springs on Earth. Mm. But still, I mean, there are things that are very close to the boiling point where there's life. So, uh, you know, Venus atmosphere might be, you know, absolutely hospitable in comparison to those, but life on Earth evolved to those niches. So, so we just don't know. Uh, you know, I'm my personal view is I think there is life there, and it's it's uh, uh, and, and it, it's evolved to a very strange form. But uh, you know, we need to go see. Yeah, and then sort of uh, on the question of. Let's call it the biomarkers in the broadest sense. Let, let me just go out a little bit on the limb and forgive me. But so a, another one that was in the news, of course, uh, one or two years ago was the sort of the um, the objects from outside the solar system. I think the first one being uh, Oumuamua. Right. And there was a, a bunch of papers about that, um, you know, um, uh, Avi Loeb from Harvard being very vocal, sort of proposing it might have been a, a light sail about the topic of light sails. Is that kind of... Stuff are you watching that as well on the side? And, well, you know, I'm any, very any excited about that. I mean, I mean, Avi Loeb is both the, a good friend of mine, a distinguished scientist, and the chairman of our Starshot Advisory Committee. So I take him very seriously. Yeah. Uh, you know, his, uh, you know, what little information we had, his point was a very legitimate one that Oumuamua was perhaps more consistent with the light sails we were developing. And it had a number of other features that he, he said it was, uh, you know, it could have been a deliberate probe. Uh, now, I'm, I tend to say that I'm 
skeptical, but I don't dismiss that. And I and I really think he did a great service by raising that. Uh, and there are now a lot of other, you know, interstellar objects. In fact, it looks like there's a lot more interstellar objects than we ever thought of, which, by the way, to me, raises the possibility that life in our solar system came from elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's sort of a different topic. But, uh, you know, I think that, uh, you know, that, that one needs to take that seriously, that, that uh, in, in fact, if some of these sort of are early, you know, sun diver light sail things work, uh, we can go chase some of those objects. And, you know, mm-hmm. there's nothing like a close-up uh, image. Yep. Now, at, at the same time, of course, you know, there's a lot of interest in, in UFOs, uh, which, uh, you know, I'm always asked, uh, well, first of all, I used to be in the Air Force. Did I know anything mm-hmm. about it? And the, and the, the very short, short and definitive answer is no, I didn't know of anything about that. That doesn't mean that the government didn't know anything about it, but, mm-hmm. you know, at least this this particular retired general didn't know anything about it, and uh, and has no evidence there's anything real there. Uh, I think my you know you know uninformed guess is that there's a real phenomenon, but it has nothing to do with aliens. Mm. You know, that and and that's a uh, you know and I, and I sort of am, am skeptical of people that immediately jump that well we saw this thing and it had to be aliens and uh, you know it's uh, uh, you know and, and but I do commend. Uh, I know Professor Loeb started a new uh, institute to uh, to try to investigate these things scientifically and look at at, at uh, you know to me one good idea and I think he's promoted this was and I will say that our foundation is not you know this is not our uh, our area but but certainly hopefully somebody would fund it is you know there are hundreds of satellites in orbit around the Earth uh, that you know imaging the whole planet every day. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in fact, you know, one group is, is my friends and former employees that founded Planet. You know, they've got, what, three mm-hmm, or 400 mm-hmm. satellites. So, you know, it, yeah. it would seem to me that it would be fairly easy to, to, uh, to if nothing else, look through their databases and, uh, and, and not be a terribly expensive thing. And, uh, uh, you know, also maybe target some of these places that people claim these things are seen, like naval test ranges. And, uh, uh, you know, and I think that's a scientific thing to be done. But, but uh, uh, you, you know, I, I, I think it's important, to, you know, that, that, that we are looking at, at uh, phenomena that we can study. And, uh, uh, you know, it's interesting to me that, you know, particularly the last few years, we've done a lot of surveying of the sky. And uh, we don't, you know, other than the signal that we're, we're not quite 100% certain is, is, is terrestrially or, or man-made, is uh, uh, there's been very little real data. So I, you know, I guess my admonition to people is if you want to scientifically look at the, the UFO phenomenon, look to our planet. Mm, yeah, that's that's fair enough. So, um, by the way, speaking about Oumuamua and sort of the light sail hypothesis, we've been mentioning light sails all along, you know, as a very interesting um, way of getting around the solar system, possibly beyond. So possibly a naive question. I guess then there's no issue with that, the, the material being degraded by cosmic radiation or anything like that. So we, we have that part solved. It looks it looks like we've, we've you know, the work that that uh, that uh, uh, Professor Atwater and, and his team have done appears that, that these materials are you know w- would be viable for you know decades if not centuries in interstellar space. Okay, and and let me let me follow up one final question, which I realized I forgot to ask when we ask you when we we're talking about breakthrough starship. So once the light sail, so the light sail gets us to the Alpha Centauri system, 
once we're there, sort of captured by you know, the gravity of any any body there, would we then ditch the light sail or what would actually happen? Well, the speed we're going, we don't know any way to stop it unless there's a laser in Alpha Centauri system that would... Right, that would, yes. And, and, and so we, it's like the you know New Horizons Pluto flyby. We just fly by and take image data and send it back. Uh, there are concepts for stopping in the Alpha Centauri system using light sails. Uh, we would have to go slower, but uh, at least a factor of maybe 10 to 100 slower. And uh, and you'd have to have a bigger light sail, lighter one. But there have been papers published that say we could, you know, maybe in the, you know, with a little more technology, be able to stop there and and stay in the system. Uh, although I think it's more likely that uh, that sometime in the next century that fusion systems, mm. uh, which uh, barely get you there, but they could get a fairly large payload and stop in the Alpha Centauri system. You know, calculations show that, that you know, a, a five-stage fusion rocket that you would have to build in space, but there would be the size of maybe the International Space Station or not too much bigger, uh, would be sufficient. Now, it, it doesn't get there as fast as, you know, we get there in 20 years. It may take a century. But this is beginning to say that that, that the nearby stars and those stellar systems are accessible within, you know, time scales that that you know people alive today may you know may live to see become real mm-hmm. makes sense and i guess then just one final question just occurred to me about this now so let's suppose there was a let's call it an inverse breakthrough star shot sort of like yuri milner peter Wurden equivalents on alpha centauri's planets sending a chip sized device at sort of a fraction of the speed of light by the earth would we even detect that no <laughs> we wouldn't interesting uh, that's the interesting thing that that uh, the sail is pretty small it goes through pretty it goes through the system pretty fast you know it would it, 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 it and our systems are not going to go that close to the planet so mm-hmm. we would not detect those uh the uh, uh you know a move certainly wasn't going at 20 percent speed of light mm-hmm. you know it was it, you know it was at sort of standard interstellar asteroid rates uh so i mean if it was an intelligent system it took a long time to get here and uh that <clears throat> so it's uh you know now that doesn't mean that you know i don't know what time scales aliens would operate under uh one of the most interesting things is we don't even know what life is and uh, mm. uh the other is a research we've been looking at is uh, is uh, try to define life and uh, uh the, the the best work to date on that has actually been done by uh, professor lee cronin at the university of glasgow and uh he's indicated that uh, that that life doesn't have to be based on carbon chemistry or anything similar to our chemistry mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but the way to identify it is chemical complexity that he's shown that there's a certain level of, of complexity that natural processes can produce in chemicals but that that uh, you know everything that 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 is indicative of life is much more complex so you know he thinks we should look for complexity rather than look for you know dna or rna or carbon compounds is is to look for uh, complexity. So it, that's an area that has a lot of promise to continue to be looked at. Yeah, that makes, that makes we, a lot we, of sense. We may even find there's other life on Earth, and uh, but we just haven't looked for it right. Yeah, so people call the uh, the shadow the shadow biosphere uh, hypothesis. Yeah. And so we've talked a lot about the solar system and, and even Alpha Centauri and, um, and, and beyond. So let's go a little bit closer back towards Earth. Um, the moon, I mean, we've mentioned starship before and i mean there's a lot of people who probably correctly say that you know if starship works then especially if the refueling in orbit works we may suddenly find ourselves with a hundred ton plus transport capacity which is i mean it's much larger than even the apollo landers um so it's going to really open up the moon so what 
what should we do with the moon? What do you think is going to well, happen? And I, and I, and, you know, to be ecumenical, I should say that it's not just Starship. I mean, Blue Origin sure. has their systems. Yep. And, 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 and the NASA, yep. NASA and other people are developing, yep. you know, a large system. Uh, I'm of the opinion that, uh, that, uh, you know, large-scale industrialization of space is is very much in human, uh, humankind's benefit. Uh, you know, I think uh, the, I think Jeff Bezos said that uh, you know, look, uh, we should move heavy industry off our planet and and keep the Earth for light industry. I mean, one of the best ways to to save the Earth is to uh, is to uh, is to remove some of the you know the most dangerous pollutants. Uh, but to even a you know, so that's the first objective. The second one is that that I think that uh, the human species uh, you know needs to expand. It needs expand if nothing else to back up our species mm-hmm. and the moon is the obvious first location i mean mars is probably not far behind uh, elon musk would argue that it's better on mars i mean I, my question there is until we know whether there's extant life on mars we should probably focus on a place we are pretty sure there's not extant life the moon mm-hmm. but uh, i think we're on the road to becoming an interplanetary species with a robust economy uh, probably within a few decades and the robust economy will help you know save the earth. I mean, one of the things I've been, uh, I've talked about a little bit, although that's nothing to do with breakthrough, is that uh, I think, uh, you know, people worried about climate change, uh, which I think is a very serious challenge, is uh, that one of the longer term solutions, and you know, it was later this century, is that uh, you give the earth sunglasses and uh, you can actually build at the Earth Sun, or actually in inside the Earth Sun Lagrange point, a large set of of light shades, which could be based on the same light sail technology. Uh, if you could block a percent or two of the sunlight, which is feasible, it's very expensive, but with things like Starship, it's becoming more feasible. And especially using lunar resources to do it, uh, then we could actively cool the planet uh, in, in a way to balance things. And it may be necessary to do that anyhow. Now, I know there's a lot of challenges. Uh, people say, well, if you're fiddling with the uh, you know, the inputs of that, how do you know you're not going to goof it up? Uh, that's a good question. But uh, by putting things at the Lagrange point, it's easy to move them. And mm-hmm. uh, and if you don't do anything to maintain it there, it just goes away. It's blown away by, mm-hmm. by you know, solar radiation pressure. So it's, uh, uh, you know, I think that, that, that the active development of the moon, first of all, for industrialization, uh, and second, for habitation, and third, for is a source of, of resources and material that uh, that could actually fix the planet, uh, I think are, are compelling and indeed mandatory if we're going to survive as a species. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in terms of, you know, we've, we've discussed a lot of very exciting sort of forward-looking thing, you know, the potential for some very exciting missions. I mean, I guess generally in the space sector right now, it's sort of a, a sensation of, of great optimism right across the board on like upcoming science mission, on, on the commercial side, you know, all of those startup companies, some of them now at a very advanced stage, you you mentioned Planet, where I think you were around for the inception of the company. Now it's a listed company with a multi-billion-dollar market cap. So there's generally a lot of optimism on space for the next few years, maybe even for the next one or two decades. Um, is there anything that that worries you? Like, is there something where we could mess this up, where it could go wrong? Well, there's always, you know, there's always a lot of things that 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 can then you know run the whole future off the rails. Uh, yeah, and there's a couple. Of, one of them is I see a growing. Uh, you know, to use the English term Luddite movement, that, mm-hmm. that you know, there seems to be a lot of people that say, well, we shouldn't do any technology, we shouldn't do any space exploration or space activities. Uh, and, you know, that's a significant, you know, group and a significant political power. I think the most likely derailing of this is going to be a, uh, you know, uh, 
you know, kind of Luddite movement. I mean, uh, and it's, uh, and, and that's a serious uh, challenge. So it's basically that, that political opinions prevent, uh, you know, making these, these, these areas of progress. Of course, related to that is that, you know, if the earth erupts into conflict, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, the more, uh, you know, sort of exploration and, and development things tend to be put aside. Uh, that's clearly a, a challenge. I mean, the third one is, is that, that if the, if the environment degrades badly enough that we're, uh, you know, that you begin to have destruction of the economy, then, uh, and other problems, uh, you know, there could be all these factors, uh, you know, you tend to have a, 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 a huge contraction of, of your, of your horizon. So all of those are, are, are potential challenges. Uh, I, I think the other one is, of course, that, that I have to confess is that I'm an inveterate optimist, uh, mm-hmm. but, and I get accused of being an optimist that, uh, you know, I think it's, uh, you know, many experts have said, look, uh, uh, you know, a, uh, that space experts have said since the, the really the 30s that, that we were going to have, you know, traveling throughout the solar system become interplanetary species. And in fact, my real, you know, uh, kind of role model and, and mentor was Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, mm-hmm. That uh, I and a colleague have just finished a draft of a book that we've dedicated to Arthur C. Clarke. We can talk about that some other time. Mm-hmm. But uh, the uh, but uh, uh, he's often accused. You know, I read some of the things he wrote in the in the you know as early as the 30s into the 50s that you know we're, we're way behind his schedule. So, but the other thing he said was that uh, uh, you know that uh, uh, when a uh, uh, you know, I think it's something to paraphrase it that if a learned expert tells you something is possible in a certain date, uh, you know, he, he's he's usually wrong on the date. But if, if if an expert tells you something is impossible, they're almost assuredly wrong. Mm. And uh, and and so I so I tend to be on the side of uh, of, of of Sir Arthur that. Uh, that we're going to go there. It might not be as fast as we think. Yeah, yeah. So if we if we continue on the optimist side and you know, assume that space is going to be exciting for for the foreseeable future, you mentioned breakthrough was also founded uh, with a focus on, on on young people and you know and having role models for young people. If if you are for the young young persons who are listening to us and whether they're interested in science or the commercial aspects of space, is there any sort of advice with you know regard to what maybe some exciting areas to pay particular attention to? Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's always hard to look in a crystal ball, but, you know, my advice to people entering their careers is, first of all, become as technically oriented as you can, you know, mm. focus on, on, you know, science and mathematics. Uh, those will always put you right. I, I think to get in specific areas, uh, I mean, obviously space is in general and particularly space propulsion is a very exciting area. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, uh, another area, and we've talked about this a lot, I, uh, I think the whole question of life and, and genetic engineering and so forth is a very exciting field, and it's inevitably going to play a major role in in, in humans living and prospering on other planets. Uh, first of all, we're probably going to have to tailor Earth life to inv- mm-hmm. to survive, including our own, mm-hmm. uh, which is always a you know fraught with <laughs> with challenges. Uh, but another area is obviously advanced computing. I'm particularly mm-hmm. excited about quantum computing. Quantum computing, and, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know the ability to make now you know many orders of magnitude 
uh, of improvement in what we can do. So, you know, those are kind of the areas I'd say were exciting. Propulsion, uh, you know, advanced life science, particular life engineering and uh, quantum computing. Yeah, yeah, f- f- fully agree. And so we always finish up with the last question um, I ask is uh, is about science fiction. We've actually touched upon science fiction a few times already with, uh, with Arthur C. Clarke you mentioned, and then, of course, the three-body problem and the expanse of what what is some of your favorite science fiction? Well, I I, I have to say Arthur C. Clarke is you know hands down my favorite author, and uh, you know a lot of science fiction authors talk about various futures, and and uh, one of the key things is is you know why do we explore, why do we go into space? And mm. there are probably at least four different reasons. I mean, one is obviously for national interest and national power. Mm-hmm. Clearly, that's what drove the uh, space program in the past. A uh, second is for knowledge with science. A uh, a third one is to make life better, you know, for humans, which is you know obviously what people like Bezos and Musk are trying to do, uh, make a profit along the way too, I might add. And uh, but the last one is uh, really what I attribute to Arthur C. Clarke that space is about uh, uh, the endless adventure. And uh, you know, my uh, uh, one of my favorite, well, there were two of my favorite books of his. One of them was The Fountains of Paradise, which is really about the human spirit. And, uh, and uh, you know, it was about the space elevator, but it also juxtaposed it with past history in, in Sri Lanka, his, his second home. But the other one is the, uh, the Songs of Distant Earth that uh, uh, we talked about interstellar expansion and, and mm-hmm. the human spirit. So th- those are the, the areas I, I find most exciting. Uh, and clearly in, you know, kind of popular science fiction, I think the expanse is because it talks about a, a near future based on a technology we think is real. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll, I'll dismiss the, you know, the alien elements, which mm-hmm. <laughs> obviously make it more interesting and exciting, but, but the, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it talks about a future where we're still humans with a lot of our foibles and, and, and challenges as well as advantages that is now spread around the solar system and based on, a, I think, primarily the fusion technology that, that they use. Yeah, which may, which may be closer in time than, than people realize. Fingers, I, fingers, exactly, fingers crossed. Exactly. <laughs> Pete, my final question. Um, you mentioned the, uh, the, the, the Swedish prices whose name we don't want to mention. Uh, they're mm-hmm. actually being announced or starting to be announced this week. Okay. When are the breakthrough prices actually being announced? Uh, well, we've already announced the, uh, the, the, the breakthrough uh, uh, prize winners. I think we did that a week or two ago. Okay. Uh, and I, I don't recall, I don't have all the list in front of me. Uh, but uh, the, uh, for this year, you know, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to have a major ceremony. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, uh, the, the other prize that will be announced soon is the one for young people, the Breakthrough Junior Challenge, where I'm, I'm one of the judges on that. Uh, and uh, uh, that's where we ask people ages 13 and 18 to, to do a couple-minute video on some fundamental principle of, of physics, mathematics, or life sciences. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I don't know who the final winner was. We forward a, a, a very short list of, of the, to, the, to our sponsors. There's a number of sponsors that, that then we interact with and, and pick a final winner. But I can tell you that very impressive, and that should be announced here in a few weeks. Great. And we'll put a link in the show notes to the various uh, Breakthrough uh, Foundations and, and Breakthrough Great. Prize. Pete, thank you so much. I hope we can do this again in, in one or two years. There's so much to talk about and speak soon. Thank you, Raphael. We'll uh, see you soon. Well, that's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash 
Space Business Podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.